Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. I'm very happy today to be speaking with Dr. Sarah Zhang, and her Chinese name is Zhang Xiaoyin, and she will say it for me again in a little bit, just in case I didn't get that quite right. Dr. Sarah Zhang is an Associate Professor of Pathology at Duke University, and she's also Chief of the Head and Neck Service and Director of the Duke Pathology Communications Group. Her areas of expertise are cytopathology and ENT pathology, as well as novel applications of social media for medical professionals. She has been honored with many awards, including the ASCP 2017 40 Under 40 Top 5, Duke's Faculty Research Mentor Award, and the CAP Resident Advocate and Pathology Advancement Awards. You can find her on Twitter at, at Sarah underscore Jing. We're going to speak a little bit about one of the recent articles she wrote for The Pathologist, and I'll give a quote a little bit later, and I'll put a link to that article in the show notes as well. So welcome to Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And you totally nailed my name, but I will say my Chinese name again, just for your listeners, because it's so nice to have the audio medium to be able to communicate that. So my Chinese name is Jiang Xiaoying. As I've mentioned in some previous podcasts, I go by Sarah Jiang just to make it easier on myself and everybody else. And it's such a pleasure to be here. This is my first time speaking with Sarah. I, I feel very lucky. We were chatting a little bit before I started recording and I was telling her that while I still have doubts sometimes about why I'm really doing this, this is probably really the only reason why I would be talking to Sarah at this point in the pandemic when Probably neither of us really have extra time. It's been a reason for me to keep going and to be able to have these conversations. Thank you again to Sarah. I wanted to ask you to tell a little personal story about yourself. My story is I did not come to medical school thinking I wanted to be a pathologist. I was just not that sophisticated. I had no idea really what pathologists did. And one of the things that I went to Duke, I'm a Duke lifer, we have a first-year curriculum where we, the medical students, share classes with the pathologist assistant students. And so one of my good friends was a pathologist assistant student, and we would sit next to each other in class every day. And uh, Courtney and I would joke about, she would say, oh, wouldn't it be funny if you know you went into pathology and I was a pathologist assistant and we worked together. And I was like, ha ha ha, I'm not going to be a pathologist. I'm going to be a real doctor. Isn't that so crazy? Thinking back to how ignorant and naive I was. And here I am all these years later, a pathologist and a real doctor. And I think back to that just um, because I feel like I've come so far. I've learned so much. And when I look at today's medical students, I just think, gosh, they are just like so much smarter than me. Not only do they know that pathology is a real specialty, but they know how awesome it is. And I just, I'm just glad that the field accepted me, even though I was so ignorant as a medical student. Thank you for that story. I also didn't plan on becoming a dermatopathologist or actually a dermatologist. One of my friends who did go into internal medicine was like, yeah, you know, by the way, if you become a dermatologist, you're not going to be a real doctor. <laughs> I totally relate to your story because I'm like, well, I'm a dermatologist and I, I actually do think I'm a real doctor, just not an internist. And really all doctors in all specialties really do a lot of real doctoring. It dovetails well into your quote that I was going to talk about, which you said in the pathologist, don't believe the stereotypes that pathologists don't care for patients. You continued on saying, we see, quote unquote, see many patients a day, if not in clinic, then under our microscopes. It's a critical and heavy responsibility. 
Communication skills, too, are key. Having the world's most sophisticated diagnosis is meaningless if we can't convey that information to our colleagues to help direct patient care. I love that quote because you're talking about seeing and communicating. Can you talk about how you optimize communication? Sure. There's so many ways to communicate. I think number one is we are, for better or worse, living in a world where we can communicate with so many different modalities, email, text, phone calls, tumor boards, podcasts, you name it. There's a way to communicate. First and foremost, it's taking the right medium for your message. I know we all are buried in emails. And I know if I'm starting an email and I start typing and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be typing for 15 pages, just pick up the phone, right? Some things still need to be phone calls. Sometimes it's the best way to get that message across. And you know, a lot of what I've worked with is communication in the context of optimizing feedback. So I've done some lectures on feedback and some papers on feedback because medical education is a big priority for me. And we always talk about the different components of feedback, which is not just the feedback itself or the what you're communicating itself, but the different components. So the giver, the recipient, the environment in which that communication or feedback takes place is really important to consider as well. So for instance, if you're giving feedback to your trainee on you know how well they performed an FNA, you wouldn't do that in a crowded elevator, right? So there's so much to think about. It's not just the message, but it's all the things packaging the message and how that message is delivered. Specifically, as you know, it pertains to pathology communication, a lot of what we do for communication is the report. In working with trainees, I really emphasize that report. When they sign out with me from day one, we're sitting in front of the computer and we are looking at that report together. And sometimes I'm sure they think I'm being super, super nitpicky when I'm going through and correcting the wording, but that's your work product. That's in many cases what your patient sees and what your surgical colleague sees is those words on the report. Yes, it is really important for the communication from that report to be as optimized as we can make it. I've been a little worried since the Cures Act, since now patients more than ever before, they always did have access, but I think more than ever before, they're actually getting their pathology reports and they do not seem to know what to do with them in terms of understanding them because of all of the technical language that is in there. The CAP, the College of American Pathologists, actually has a website called yourpathologist.org. It's a website that has videos and some resources directed at patients to try to help them to understand their pathology report and tell them a little bit about what goes into it. I know that Dr. Kamran Mirza and Mike Schubert of the Pathologist Magazine are coming together to work on a resource called, I think, Pathology Clinics, which will also have some videos that are aimed at patients to explain to them the basics of different diagnoses. I will put those websites into the show notes. I'm going to move on to a slightly different question. Is there a way that you actively improve your diagnostic skills? Probably the number one way that I actively improve my diagnostic skills is because I do cyto and I do histo. I do cyto-histo correlation. So I think that to me is really, really helpful because being able to see the search path of those weird thyroid lesions or weird salivary lesions, and then go back. I often will pull the site out, certainly, especially if I, it's 
think it's something weird or interesting, I'll look back on the cyto. My surge path practice informs my cytology practice. A lot of us who do cyto and then something else do that to kind of inform our practice. And then the usual things. I do read papers. I'm on Twitter. I look at the interesting cases people post on Twitter or the papers people post on Twitter. I love to give talks and write papers, not just because I think it's fun and my chair cares about that for my CV, but it also forces you to do a literature review and forces you to keep up with the literature. And of course, you know, I try to go to as many meetings as I can. And again, mostly for me, it's because I love seeing my friends and chit-chatting and, you know, having dinner with them, but also because I do go to the lectures and learn new things and talk to the experts. So all the usual things. Yeah. Yes. But I loved what you said first, especially because it comes into the cognitive psychology concept of deliberate practice in which you need feedback in order to improve. Mm -hmm. You're actively using cytopath and the surge path in tandem to improve one versus the other. There's a standard that you're using. When I spoke to Tim McCalmont, he said that with molecular, that he felt that he had a big learning experience when he was able to correlate the molecular findings of certain melanocytic things with what it looked like as to pathologically. As we're talking about communication, have you thought about your own emotions or say whoever's sitting with you, their emotions, and what types of emotions are most conducive to you signing out in that group setting or by yourself with a minimum of error? I definitely think that your emotional and energy state plays a role in your diagnoses. I definitely know for for myself, at the end of the day, I am more likely to feel tired. And if I get a really, really difficult biopsy or a cytopath case or kind of one of those thyroid biopsies that I think might be an in-betweener, I'll set it aside for first thing in the morning when I'm fresher. And I don't know if pride really counts as an emotion. But I definitely think that the opposite, humility, is really important to bring with you to the diagnostic process. My trainees have all heard me say this over and over again, but it's important to try to prove yourself wrong. No one knows everything. After you've been practicing pathologists for a while, right? You know this. You get a biopsy, you're like, I know what this is. I'm awesome. And in that moment, I always tell my trainees, that's great. You may be right. But especially if it seems so easy and slam dunk, just try to prove yourself wrong. Think of the ways you could be going down the tubes. Think of the pitfalls. I love teaching about pathology pitfalls. And I tell my trainees, it's not to demoralize you. If you fall into the pitfalls now, you'll remember it for when you're in practice. And I think approaching all your cases with humility, not just those difficult cases where we know we're going to need to ask for help, but even you know the ones that seem pretty straightforward, especially if it's a small biopsy, just run through the mental exercise of of, am I missing something? Could I be doing something wrong? And I think approaching your practice with that kind of humility gets you in the right mindset to really do the right thing about the patients. Because it's not about whether you, Dr. Ko, or me, Dr. Jang, is right. It's about whether we get the right answer for the patient. I love that the way you expressed it, to have humility with every single slide, especially the one that you think is easy because I'll do that. And I, I, I feel more validated hearing you have said that because I'll do that with basal cell carcinoma, mm-hmm. you know, which is easy. Like it's in derm yeah. path, it's supposed to be one yeah. of the most easy, easy diagnoses. Yeah. I'm like basal cell. But even for that, these days I'll be like, could it be a melanoma? Going back to what you just said with the humility portion of it is to still use then analytics and say, 
well, am I really sure? And try, like you just put so well, try to prove myself wrong. I really like how you encapsulated all that. Do you have a specific process or routine by which you come to each diagnosis that you make? I always walk my trainees through the diagnostic process. I'm not exactly sure that's what my brain is actually doing, but it's helpful to put it into words. And I always say for surge path, if it's a tumor, you know, is it lesional or not? Ask the questions. Is it lesional or not? If it's lesional, is it inflammatory? Is it infectious? Is it neoplastic? If it's neoplastic, is it, is it benign or malignant? So in my brain, I like to paint it as this like algorithmic flow chart. But I think the reality of how my brain works is it's that instant pattern recognition. When I put a paraganglioma down and I see that really like blue violet cytoplasm, my brain doesn't go, is it lesional? Is it neoplastic? It just goes paraganglioma. But yeah. when we're teaching trainees, we you know, that's not like if they ask you why is this is a paraganglioma, you can't just say, because it is, right? That's right. not helpful. So you kind of have to talk them through that. And so I don't know that it's really an answer to your question, but I have a routine that I talk through with my trainees. And I think what really happens when I put down the biopsy is I go, oh, that's not right, you know? And and then I try to figure out what kind of not right. This is so fun for me because what you just touched on, I think is exactly how most pathologists do do what they do. It's not like we have this algorithm or checklist in our head unless we're forcing our brain to do that. Do you have any final thoughts? None of us are born pathologists. You know, certainly I wasn't. I didn't even go to med school thinking I was going to be a pathologist. And none of us are really born communicators, although I think some people find it easier than others. But we can and should all be trying to improve our skills constantly in pathology, in communication, and we all get better with practice. Um, and in our practice, I think I'm going to go back to this, humility is key. And if you stay humble, you're going to be able to learn how to be a better pathologist and communicator from your patients and from your cases and from each other. Oh, thank you, Sarah. That's such a lovely answer. I really enjoyed so, so much talking to you. Thank you for spending the time with me. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.